This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, welcome to the DLR Cast, where two fans, not fanboys, talk all things David Lee Roth and Van Halen and uh, other things as well. I am Steve, joined as always with my good friend Darren Palchowitz. What's happening, Darren? Great day, right? Great day, Steve. Yeah, well, it's a great episode. I am really psyched for this week's guest, one Greg Renoff, author of two fantastic books, uh, Van Halen Rising, uh, which tells the story of, well, Van Halen's rise to prominence in Southern California, as well as just released in April, Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. Yeah, you just said a lot of words right there, and every one of uh, those words was true. It's not just a different kind of truth. <laughs> I see what you did there. Well, yeah. you know what? A little ain't enough when it comes to Greg Renoff. Oh! oh. And no, this was quite the enjoyable conversation. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're a Dave fan, you probably, uh, you probably, I would bet you read, and you're a Van Halen fan, you read Van Halen Rising. I mean, it's, it's an incredible book. I give it two thumbs up, five stars. It is so well researched. And we get into it. He talks about the book. We get into, uh, you know, how Van Halen really blew up in Southern California and how they did it. So much research and so much info on these infamous backyard parties and man it was just a delight talking to him yeah to say the very least uh i think that this is a different kind of guest that we've had before you know we've had some people who've worked with dave in different capacities we've had some musicians who are fans of dave but nobody who spent years researching dave and speaking to maybe hundreds of people who knew or worked with dave in some capacity yeah, that's what really blew my mind is, in, and we talked about, um, uh, you know, just so much about Van Halen and Dave, but also the band's evolution in such a short amount of time. And, you know, one thing kind of struck me, and I won't give away all the interview, but, talk, you know, we were talking, as you'll hear in the interview, um, you know, when we were talking about these famous, these infamous backyard parties where these weren't just a bunch of kids in a garage. These were, right. like, you know, 2,000 people in a mammoth backyard in Pasadena. And it struck me because he was talking about flyering and all that. I mean, you have to remember, this is like 1972. 374 this is this is before social media and they did their own social media they would print out thousands of flyers yeah. get them over every school under every windshield wiper at concerts everywhere and i mean they you know nobody did i can't think of a band that ever came up that way the way they did but stepping into before they reached getting to the club level by building an audience doing these kind of backyard parties it's 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 an amazing story and greg just tells it so well in the book and like you mentioned talk to everybody and we got so many great details from him as well as a few spoilers <laughs> for that book as well as i'm hearing him talk about uh his book with ted templeman his book on ted templeman yeah when we think about the bands who flyered we think about motley crew and we think of poison and motley crew that was early 80s and poison sure. that was the mid 80s that they were flyering so we're talking about maybe the first hard rock band that really made it off of street promotion and DIY style flyering and all that. Like the Beatles were not flyering. No, no. <laughs> I, I mean, what other band can we think of that was really flyering before Van Halen? Nothing's coming to mind to me. 
I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, maybe there was some, you know, small bands, other places that did that. And, you know, certainly I bet there was fans back then who took it upon themselves maybe to make zines and, and flyers yeah. and things like that. But as far as handling their own self, their own promotion, their own self-promotion, pre-management, doing it all on their own, booking. And sure, lots of bands do this, but they did it so damn well. And there was a lot of things they did first, really. I mean, like you mentioned. Yeah, to say the least. And by the way, when you said that there were mammoth backyard parties before, was that a pun? <laughs> I, it should have been. I caught that. I was waiting for you to. T- <laughs> I, I I thought I teed that up for you really easily. There, mammoth being the name of. Uh, uh, do I have this right? Eddie and Alex's band before Dave joined the band. Yeah, uh, you did do that correct. And without spoiling too much, we spoke about the original bassist of Van Halen, Mark Stone. We spoke about Dave's dad. I don't think we've talked about Dave's dad in a podcast before, have we? No, we have not. And boy, did and we don't give the spoilers away, but boy, did we <laughs> learn a lot about Dave's dad and some appearances and different things he did. That was <laughs> that was mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's our longest episode yet, yet the most educational. I I learned a lot. We could do a part two, a part three, and a part four with Greg, and still maybe not tap on everything. Well, I'm a fan. I mean, if it's music and hard rock related and he writes it, I'm going to I I will check it out. And I am still awaiting my Ted Templeman book to arrive. Um, you know, the mail has been a little bit slow here of late, but uh, yeah. uh, that, he really gave some great insight into Ted. We learned some different Van Halen stories there. And we talked about this in the interview, too. I mean, I would bet most hard rock fans know Ted, and it kind of makes sense because it was his big, I think his biggest records, but no Ted through Van Halen. But man, did he have a huge pedigree and a huge resume before before Van Halen. So it was really cool to talk about that and learn a lot about that. For sure. Uh, there is, I don't think we talked Van Hagar in this interview, did we? And, you know, I don't think we did too much. Uh, I, well, you know what? He does bring up the fact that I think they wanted... Uh, the guys wanted uh, they wanted Ted to do 5150, right? You're right. We did talk about that, but this also might be our first interview where I didn't ask the person, uh, <laughs> Dave or Sammy. I don't think I did in this one. I don't think you did either. So, but either but, way, man, Greg, wow, such a thrill. Well, on that note. Here's that interview. Thanks for listening and thanks for downloading the DLR cast. Tell your friends, rate us, review us, uh, give us a four out of five stars. We're humble. And uh, thank you. (laughs) Thanks, guys. All right. As promised, this week's interview is a great one and one we're uh, looking forward to having a conversation here with Greg Renoff, the author of Van Halen Rising, How a Southern Californian California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, and the brand new Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. How you doing, Greg? Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, well, I like thank you for doing this, man. Uh, like uh, we set up in our in our in our intro, um, uh, Darren and I are fans, but we're not fanboys, and so we, uh, you know, so we will uh, slice to ribbons all sorts of different things regarding Dave. And this is the DLR cast, and I want to get into a bunch of things from Van Halen Rising, and as well as Ten Templeman, sure. and and I certainly want to find out what may be next for you because I actually have a book idea. Uh, I, I, I'll pitch your way. So uh, bring it on. I'm ready. I'm all yours. You're in- investigatory talents i think will uh might do it well so uh but anyway so 
let's talk about uh, first off, I guess, with Van Halen Rising, because um, hopefully, I think if people are listening to this, they know what this book is about. It's really the most in-depth book I've I've read as far as how Van Halen got to at least as far as the how they got to where they got to be for the first album, and what the stuff you uncovered was mind blowing. I mean, first off, what was the genesis to to get to do this book? To do Van Halen Rising, I mean, how did where did the idea start? And and it's a hell of a it's it's a hell of a piece of investigatory journalism what you uncovered in Southern California there. Well, uh, for me, growing up a fan, I've talked about this a lot. You know, it was it was you know Van Halen was kind of it for me in the '80s. That was the band I was my number one band. And, uh, you know, life goes on, and you go off and do different things with life. Some people become doctors, some people become lawyers. I became a historian. And uh, that was always my first love was history. And I went to grad school and I got a PhD in history and uh, kind of midpoint of my academic career. I'd gotten tenure and I had a little bit of time um, one summer where I sort of had a little breathing room and I didn't have to think about, oh, I got to write, you know, write the next journal article and kind of do something you know, academic. I was going to do a fun little um, what I thought was going to be like a little even article for like Van Halen News Desk. I didn't really have any big plans for it. I was just going to do a little thing on uh on Van Halen's beginnings, because I had started to read a little bit about their uh, their origins. You know, the Inside Magazine. You guys probably have seen that special issue that was like what's got to be like 20 years old now, 23 years old. That talked about the club days and some of that stuff really kind of got stuck in my craw. I was like, this is really interesting, and you know, this is all new to me, and I think it was new to a lot of people who read that stuff. And you go to Wikipedia, and there was all this. I don't want to say misinformation, but there was just a lot of like gaps and things that didn't make sense in terms of the band's beginnings because people were just sort of like, you know, editing Wikipedia. Be like, I read this in an interview and I think this fits right. here. So, right. And so, um, and that's how it kind of started for me. I did a, I, I did a couple of interviews with some locals in Pasadena and, you know, they, they, uh, these guys at the end of the interview would say, Hey, you know, who you should talk to, you should this talk to this guy. And it just started that way. So, um, I just became increasingly aware of the fact that I didn't think of anyone, I didn't think anyone else was going to do a book like this. And I just thought, you know, if you want, <laughs> if, you, if you, me, meaning me, wanted to know about how Van Halen got started, how they formed the whole Mark Stone issue, the the, uh, the Gene Simmons stuff, which was really interesting to me, I, I was going to have to do it. And I don't mean to say I'm the only one who could have done it. Obviously, there are people who could have done it, but it's a matter of having the interest and the desire and the drive to do it because it took uh, 230 interviews by the time I was done with the book. And I don't say that to sort of pat myself in the back. I just mean like, you know, I really, it was not an, an easy thing to research. It's not something you could just kind of go to news, newspapers or just go, oh, I'll just read some old circus magazines and I'll put this whole thing together. It wasn't like that. So, you know, I knew I had the ability and I, I just, um, I, you know, it was one of these things that, you know, part of me was like, I don't, you know, do I, do I want to do it? You know, because it's, you know, it didn't really fit with what I was doing in terms of my professional professional career, um, which was, you know, you know, rock rock bio isn't exactly like mainstream history stuff. When you go look, you know, college campus, people aren't usually doing that. But you know, for me, it just became a thing. I really decided that I I wanted to do and felt compelled to do it. And I was just became more and more interested. I mean, more I heard, I was like this, you know, as the book, I hope, demonstrates to people. It isn't if the subject matter is boring. It's like the more you learn, the more you're like, shit, this is really cool. I want to learn more about this. And I just kept going and going. And, you know, um, for me, the other thing I, was, I would say along those lines is that as I talked about a, a few times in uh, when the book was first released, you know, I really didn't feel as if and I still don't really feel as if that Van Halen gets their full due. 
um, among the great classic rock bands. I mean, everyone knows Zeppelin, The Who, The Beatles, you know, kind of go down the line and sort of all this sort of, you know, bowing down to these acts, rightfully so, for their influence. And I, I felt, especially in that the period of the, you know, the, the 2000s, where the band was kind of adrift and there really wasn't any any sense that anything was really going to to happen from, you know, what, never like 99 to 2007 ish, right? Where it just sort of seemed like the whole thing was kind of a mess. You know, I kind of look back on that period too. And obviously I was writing the book after that period, but I kind of felt like, you know, they're not, they didn't, one of the reasons why Van Halen maybe doesn't get their due is because they were just so scattered. And it was just such a, mm-hmm. right. There was no, no like, it is like the whole thing kind of came apart in so many ways. Like Zeppelin never did that. The who never did that. I mean, the who obviously, you know, you lose Keith Moon, they get Kenny Jones and whatever. Then they sort of, you know, but it always seems to remain sort of the who. And you kind of, even if it's and whistle's gone, it's still the two guys. And it sort of, it sort of continued marching along the stones. You always had Mick and Keith kind of marching along. We had all this stuff that was going on with the band. And I felt that was part of the reason why, you know, people were kind of like, Oh, whatever Van Halen doesn't really matter. Or, you know, whatever, like, you know, you know, I think that was, that still may be the case for a lot of people, but I think that was definitely in uh, much more in the, this this century was a much more a thing to be like kind of like Van Halen doesn't really matter the way we we knew growing up how much they mattered. Right. Exactly, exactly. It's interesting you mentioned that those other bands because even with periods of inactivity or people dying or people breaking whatever it might be. Um, you had a label and management that kind of kept the flame alive right. via reissue campaigns, right. great box sets, right. the occasional right. reunion tour. But you're right. There was a dead zone period where there was, you know, save for that misbegotten Sammy tour in 2004. Right. I mean, between Van Halen 3 and and when they got, you know, reunited in 2007, I mean, there, I, we talk about this every now and then. And I want to get back to the origins of Van Halen at the beginning of the book. but Sure. One thing that always strikes me with Van Halen is just, you know, throughout their career is just when you look at what's going on, you know, uh, geez, two decades worth of virtually so little activity. It's right. just the mm-hmm. amount of time for whatever reason. I'm not here to spread rumors of different things, whatever, sure, whatever but a lot right. of people know what the rumors are. But just the lost opportunities, man. You know what I mean? That right. that a band that was so great that I don't because of that, I don't think you're I think you're right. I don't think they necessarily get their due. Uh, certainly Eddie does and always will. And, and, you know, the guitar magazines have sold millions of copies because of, you know, just the, you know, yet another tablature, uh, you know, analysis of eruption or whatever, (laughs) but you're absolutely right on that. But, um, and Darren, jump in any time here because I got a bunch of things running through my brain. But I want to get to the book, uh, Van Halen Rising, because there's a bunch of things that really jumped out at me. The first off is that they're the only (laughs) band I could think of that, uh, you know, bands do the club circuit. They get out there. But right. Van Halen's the only band that actually blew up and started their legend do, doing a backyard party circuit. And the info and the details and how you found these people who, right. you know, who, uh, you know, the guy who like, you know, uh, who punched the, the woman who punched the kid who tripped over the hose <laughs> that got water flowing out of the pool pump and damn near electrocuted the band. It fucking blew me the way the details. But I the the what really like just just really blew me away also was the fact that I can't think of a band that really came up and you know, really blew up that way before ever hitting the clubs. I mean, there it wasn't just legend. There was a whole circuit. These guys made money. And, you know, it wasn't a bunch of guys milling around in a garage 
playing for kids, you know, with a couple cases of beer. We're talking hundreds of people would show up at these things. Yeah, I I, th- I appreciate you guys saying that about the book. I mean, the thing for for me, you know, that was part of the thing was like you can find these people too. They're still on, you know, look up the names. They're still on Facebook. You can message them themselves. They'll tell you the same stuff. I mean, that was the thing. It was like, but you know, for them, it was like the central social thing of their childhood. You know what I mean? Like for a lot of mm-hmm. these people, it was Van Halen was our band. Mammoth was our band. This was our thing. You know, for you know for some kids. Obviously, it's like you win the national, you know, win the state championship in football. You know, you're in New Jersey. It's a big deal. You win, you know, that's like their their thing that they all kind of bond together and remember. And for these these kids who like rock music, who grew up in Pasadena, these parties were, you know, it was like, it was like, you know, they no one ever forgot them. Um, and I, I always talk about two people like, oh, how do you know people were telling the truth? I said, well, you know, we talked to 40, 50 people and they're basically <laughs> telling you the same thing, kind of fleshing it out. I mean, obviously, I mean could be exaggerations. I mean, we get that, right? It's like, it's 50 years ago, people's memories are what they are, but like, you sort of like, you're like, like this is what happens. And then you like, as a historian, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna look in the newspaper and you scroll through the Pasadena star news. And you're like, see these little articles that say police break up, you know, <laughs> backyard, you know, riot or whatever. And it doesn't mention Van Halen because the band doesn't matter, but they're like, you know, 600 kids were in the backyard and there was bottles and rocks. Around. You're like, holy shit, they're telling the truth. That's basically, you know, basically what happened. That's what they're telling the truth. You know, that's it. You know, and I never had any particular doubt that people were quote unquote lying. But you know what I mean? Like, it's like when you see that verification of like, it was like, it made the newspaper as an unsigned band. Yeah, I mean, they were, it was, that's what I mean about it being um, something that you you would read these details and you just felt more and more like I wanted to get the full, as much of the full story as I could. Yeah, something that really struck me, his name has already come up once, Mark Stone. Yeah. He's kind of in the unfortunate footnote section of everything, along with Pete Best. And if you're really, really a big rock fan, you'll know who Jason Evermore is, the only guy to be displaced out of both Nirvana and Soundgarden. I think there's a guy who is also kicked out of both NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys, Charlie something or other. Like, these guys are out there. And Mark Stone has that unfortunate footnote of, yeah, he was the guy that was in Van Halen. But I think you're one of the first people to really give him his due as existing and being a part of what built Van Halen. You know, it was interesting. I think I I, Mark never said this to me directly, but I definitely think that Mark was apprehensive when he kind of heard I was writing this book. I, you know, again, because of this, you know, the sort of this maybe this. He never said this, the stigma of that or whatever. Again, the book wasn't going to be focused on Mark Stone, but I was going to talk about him. And when the book came out and he read it, he actually came up to me and thanked me. And I'm not saying that to to give myself credit, but I think he really felt like, you know, because he deserved it. He was in, he was with those guys for three years, as I say in the book. I mean, you're not going to be hanging around Ed and Al if you can't play for three years. They're going to be rid, rid of you in like, we know how it is, <laughs> you know, the, the brothers and how they are. They're not going to put up with that. They're going to, you'd be gone in three hours. You know, you'd be like, you're gone, you're fired. And so, um, you know, Mark was the guy who brought the first Black Sabbath album to Eddie and Alex and showed it to him and um, was the guy who learned those those songs with those guys, all those those crazy prog rock stuff they did when they were early on, kind of like, you know, obsessing over these records. And, you know, I, I always had great you got to have great sympathy for someone like that. And I don't know if you feel sorry for the guy, but I mean, anyone can imagine what it would be like to be like, oh, you know, I was, you know, whatever. I was cut the year before the team won the Super Bowl or something like that. And that was my entire life's dream. And like, I get cut from the team. They go and win the Super Bowl. I don't get a Super Bowl ring. I don't get to play. And it never happens for me, you know, and it doesn't mean you didn't work hard in practice and 
do all the things that you would expect a great player to do. You just never had that chance to be on that that stage. And so, yeah, I mean, Mark is a, you know, Mark is a guy who deserves, I, I you know, he designed that logo. I mean, have those, everyone like every, as soon as you have those, you know, those, those quote unquote, you know, the Mark Stone logo shirts, people love those. They're like, oh, Mark, like, you know, I want that logo because it's the, the early Van Halen and stuff. I mean, Mark was, yeah. Um, you know, and again, there's obviously, like you mentioned, a lot of bands where a lot of guys kind of departed. I don't know, um, you know, how many of those guys were in the band from, you know, roughly like 1970 to 74. Mark was, you know, something like that. I never quite could exactly pinpoint that, actually. But, you know, 71 to basically 74. He was with those guys for like three plus years. It's a long time to be, you know, moving gear with those guys, mm-hmm. getting gigs, doing the whole thing. And so, um, yeah, and I think he was an important part of the uh you know, part of that that whole rise out of Pasadena, where he sort of you know laid down that first foundation for those guys. They went on, they got Mike, as we know, for for a number of reasons, probably no um, no no breaking news is his voice, and he was you know he was a very talented guy and kind of was the the right guy to fit in there for Van Halen. But um, yeah, I mean it's, it's it was fun it was fun to talk to uh, Mark, and like I said, that really made me feel good personally. And I wasn't I didn't know how he was going to react, but I meant it to be respectful of him and saying, look, you really, you know, you, you were there and you did stuff that um, deserves, you know, of someone to go, Hey, thanks for, you know, helping those, you know, whatever you did to help those guys along the way. That's cool. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting to think too, again, you know, you bring up that football analogy. It's like, I mean, who's to say if they would have got that far had, Mark stayed in the band. I mean, there's something to be said sure. about this incredible chemistry that they had. And, you know, but you're right. I mean, as far as as far as the way the Van Halen brothers were and all that, I mean, you do have to have a little sympathy. For, you absolutely have to have some sympathy for the guy. I mean, you know, when you're that, you, you just can't help but wonder and play the what if game. Yeah. 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 And, and uh and it just keeps going. Like I'm looking at you, Steve, right now, and I see that Blink-182 plaque you have behind you. And yeah. that's a band where they had a drummer who was on the first two records, and then he was gone. And everyone thinks, hey, Travis Barker's the drummer of Blink-182. And you got to think, well, who's the guy that hauled all that gear for two years who was along for the record deal? So when you think about it, probably every band that we could talk about, you 2 didn't they have uh, the Edges brother on second guitar for the first few years? You guys are blowing, you guys are blowing my mind with the, yeah. the, the yeah, trivia yeah. there. I don't know that. That's interesting. That's there is there's there is there's a book idea right there for you you know the the what ifs the you know the, the guys, guys who who the came guys, this yeah. Cl- yeah came so close to I mean the Pete Best right but there's it's littered with dozens of people like that I mean you know not to even go further down the rabbit hole but I'm naturally wearing a cheap trick shirt because I adore those guys well there was a singer before Robin Zander for goodness sakes that, Randy know, Hogan right Zeno like yeah that. so Randy Zeno but yeah we're we're going off the rails here as Darren and I often do um. <laughs> So bringing it around to those early years again, a couple things that really stood out and just uh, a lot of things I knew as being a deep fan. And I always believed this. And these were certainly arguments that I had in the old Sammy versus Dave days. I graduated high school in 85. You know, I mean, right. the, the thrill of, be, of being a high school graduate and all that was in front of me to, you know, coupled with the sheer dis- depression that right. what the hell is Dave going to do without Van Halen? You know, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you graduated and they broke up, basically. It's yeah, like right inside. That was basically it. And then the arguments and the fights over, you know, eat him and smile versus 5150. Well, you know, I would tell anybody that listened back then for what I knew from reading Kerrang! magazine and everything else was that, you know, this was 
this Van Halen got to where they were and are so much so because of Dave and your book really the overarching one of the overarching things I got out of this is that without Dave Van Halen could have been a power trio playing prog rock for 10 more years easily I I really I mean I really believe that I mean again I if you think about how the brothers kind of see even today the world of promotion the world of how do we market the band? Right. We're, we're you know, I think we all, all kind of know that um, Roth is probably as not a powerful of a voice as he was in 1983 in the band. For for whatever reason, we'll just leave that to speculation. But that there's definitely a different a different dynamic in terms of how the band operates today than there was 30 years ago. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's just the kind of the the way I think Eddie and Alex kind of see things. They're not naturally guys who are going to go out and seek the spotlight. They're not going to seek to promote. And I think, I honestly think that's, that comes from an area of, of um, almost, I don't want to say humbleness, but sort of this, if we're good, people will know we're good. We don't need to tell anybody. We don't need to. I think that's kind of comes from their old world. I mean, that could be complete, you know, you know, Wolfgang pops on the chat here and he's like, that's bullshit, whatever. You don't know what you're talking about. I don't know, like, like, <laughs> like the voice of right, reason. Right. Also, like, you don't really know what you're talking about. That's just my speculation. Um, you know, yeah. someone maybe someone who's closer with those guys would know. I, I, I don't have any insight insight into that. But it's it's interesting. I think that they sort of they don't they don't see it as almost as, you know, uh, dirty kind of like, you know, and I don't mean that in a bad way. But they're sort of like it's like, you know, it's like what that's sort of the whole marketing. I don't think they like it. I don't th- you know, I think they did it when they had to. Obviously, they was saying, you know, the, you do it. You do the interviews, you do the press conferences, whatever you do, the, the, the sit downs. Right. But I don't think they ever were like, yes, I really want to do this. I think, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And certainly in the embryonic years, I don't think they necessarily knew how to do it either. I mean, Dave's given him wardrobe details and stuff, but also from a musical end of things, um, you know, they wouldn't have been doing Earth, Wind and Fire covers and and the, and Casey and Sunshine Band, no. all that stuff, no. which which Dave brought an element of soul to that band, which heretofore did not exist. And yeah. regardless of, you know, how much and that's a that's a whole other conversation, I'm sure. But how much of that songwriting process there was, I mean, Dave brought melodies, as we know, he brought uh, certainly the lyrics, but Jamie's crying would not be what it is no. without Dave in it. Yeah, I mean, I think. For me, when I think about what Roth did for the group, I mean, I think I think he'd always talked. That's the thing. He always he had talked about it when he had made you know in his book he talked about I I checked the songs for danceability, you know it it was my not surprised to learn that that was actually pretty damn accurate when you talk to people and they talked you know I talked to Pasadena locals who would talk about how much they hated it when Dave joined because it changed the sound of the group you know they would like get in like dave whatever i mean that's that's all that's all a matter of taste but they didn't like it because in part because it was like they were doing less black sabbath covers and they were doing more pop stuff because roth right. was like look guys congratulations we can play backyard parties till whenever but roth was driven i mean that was a thing too that i'm sure you guys picked up on was that the, the red ball jet stuff and i pretty quickly figured out that a lot of the stuff dave tested out in red ball jet or tried doing red ball jet you know, it was like a preview for later, like going sure. down to the Sunset Strip with with this basically high school group that was not ready to perform on the Sunset Strip. But, you know, getting his dad to pay for a Motown choreographer 
And these are the guys, you know, these are the guys in Red Ball Jet that told me this. this you know, this is like the other guys in the band were like, yeah, this was Dave's dad idea and Dave's idea to get this choreographer to get us to, get, to have moves so we would be like able to make it onto this. <laughs> this is a strip. And of course, it's laughable, right? But yeah. then you think, you fast forward and you think he, he got it. He understood that was the way to get a record deal. That was the way you're not going to get a record deal playing in some subdivision in Arcadia. You're just not, you know, you're going right, to play right. clubs. And you're going to have to have an act and something that people don't want to come see, not just sort of four guys. You know, they just had a different – the brothers had a different vision for it. I mean, they really wanted to be – imagine like Black Sabbath. They thought we're just going to stand there, our hair hanging down, bashing <laughs> away. And Dave was kind of like, there already is a Black Sabbath. Right. You know, Conversely, I think it has to be said too, we wouldn't be doing a DLR cast if Dave didn't hook up with Eddie Van Halen, oh. which, which brings up one of the things that really blew my mind that I did not know about is that – and this comes to vision and drive. He somehow identified Eddie's, you know, talent so early oh, yeah. to oh, yeah. the point where he tries out for the band, doesn't make it. <laughs> right. You fast forward a couple of years, he still really wasn't good enough to get into the studio, but drove, you know, to sing on the. From what I gathered, you know, he was taking singing lessons and trying to improve his voice up to, you know, the first album practically. Yeah. But when I look at it, that drive and that vision, he tries out, he doesn't make it. And if you're in SoCal at that time, you've got, I would guarantee, you know, I'm sure Terry Kilgore, George Lynch was a contemporary, probably five or six other hotshots right. that nobody remembers that was slinging a guitar in yes. SoCal there. Right. Yep. And yet he was so zeroed in on yeah, he Eddie. Knew. He knew. It, that yeah, just he knew. blows, that really blows my mind. I he, mean, he, it, yeah, I mean, I think that's the really interesting thing is like one of the guys in Red Ball Jet said to me, Dave was frustrated because he knew not like even including himself. He knew we didn't have it like what he saw where he wanted to be. We weren't even close to be. And he certainly knew that we weren't musically good enough, the guys. And yet, you know, he he knew, too, he he wasn't good enough, but he believed he could do it. You know what I mean? That type of thing. And so I think when he saw the brothers, he's like, well, here we here we go. You know, and, I, you know, he he saw the flaw, what he saw, the flaw in what they they had. They didn't see it as a flaw. And, and, you know, in a lot of ways, it wasn't. They could play the whole second side of Live at Leeds perfectly. There's not, not a flaw <laughs> right. there, right? That's right. not a flaw. But he saw what the eventual end would be, which is you're going to go nowhere. You can't get a you can't get a record deal doing that. Um, right. And, and that and from Dave's standpoint, you wouldn't. Now, again, yeah, I mean, in theory, they're a heavy metal band. They could have they could have gotten a record deal. But he meant like. It probably wasn't going to happen where they're suddenly going to get discovered, you know, playing in some garage party. You know, that's way, you know, and so he had his own, hey, let's make this into a different sort of sound and thing. You know, he brought his musicality to the table and and changed it. I mean, that's the, the most amusing thing to me, too, is that and it's not really amusing. It's just more interesting is that Roth talks about how he tried to sing the stuff that the brothers liked, like the heavy metal grand funk stuff and all right. that. It's like, you know, he talked about the first party they played it. He's like. We were terrible. It was so bad. He was like, right. I was so bad because he, you know, he kind of knew that that wasn't his. He liked Led Zeppelin and stuff, but it wasn't his thing. Like to do that sort of, you know, he had much more of a, you know, like that pop Motown approach to songs. That's what he sang. If he was going to sing anything, that was what he was going to sing and, and pull it off. He wasn't going to be able to pull off, you know, Speed King by Deep Purple effectively. Just you know, it right. wasn't it wasn't his his thing. Well, it was it's you know it's two completely disparate record collections when you're thinking of it coming exactly. up. Sure, they you know they probably both everybody got into the Beatles, but, you right. know. But 
Dave's digging George Gershwin and James right. Brown and, right. you know, this big band stuff while, you know, Eddie and Alex are doing bong hits. And there's nothing wrong with this, you know, digging <laughs> Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and everything else. Yeah. And right. it's the perfect blend together right. when you think of it. Right. I mean, it, it right. really and right. no other band really brought forth to this day. I don't think that kind of chemistry, you know, together like that. It, right. it It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think I think, too. It's interesting to think about, too, if if they hadn't been in L.A., you know, I actually never really even thought about this. But, you know, part of the reason why they were able to make it is because they were in L.A. But on the other hand, you know, I don't know nationally sort of what the the, the nightclub scene were or in other places. Obviously, they were in Miami. There might have been a different nightclub scene or New York City might have been a different nightclub scene. They may have had a different sound. But certainly Roth saw there were dozens and dozens and dozens of nightclubs where you played top 40. And I'm going to guess. And that was pretty much a universal thing in the United States at the time. I don't know for 100 percent, but I'm, I'm, you know, that was that was obviously there were clubs like that all over the country where the idea was that you just came and you were you needed to play the top 40 hits. Right. No one really cared about your own song. No one cared about your songs. If you want to get paid and you want to get seen and on this stage, you better be able to play Elton John, Steely Dan, whatever, down the line. Um you, you Motown, whatever, like we talk about all the, the hits that people want to hear. Right. Um, and two or th- two or three 40 minute sets a night, too. So you had to be oh, pretty deep. <laughs> more, more than that. Five 45 minute sets. That's right. how many they did. You know, and, you know, you start that's they start to sneak in their originals and stuff like that. But, you know, like there was that great, the great discussion in there about the, uh, you know, kind of the first p- club they play. I think it was called Posh. I think it was, you know, and they. <laughs> It just, you know, they didn't have enough material. They lied and then they had to start playing Black Sabbath and the owner like basically cut the power. The owner cut the power. You know, he was like, you guys get out of here. Don't ever come back because no one wants to hear shit. I mean, you know, my 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 uh, clients do my clientele doesn't want to hear this stuff. Get out of here. You know, go do that in your own basement. Right on. Yeah. So what I want to know of all this is if anyone in the Roth camp actually gave you feedback on any of the books because we hear great stories about zero. how zero okay or van, or van halen's camp nothing it's, no I, I shouldn't i shouldn't i shouldn't say that i should the only thing i've heard that is actually i think a legitimate anecdote is that i heard um some a guy sent me a picture of his company van halen rising and michael anthony had signed it and, you know, some guy saw Michael Anthony had the book with him and he and Mike signed it. And Mike's like, oh, it's a good book. Good yeah. book. You know, like wrote good book, you know, Chris in like, you know, good reading or something like that. And like and was apparently said, like, I like the or good book or something. I don't even you know. Nobody. I mean, people ask me that all the time. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, obviously, there are, you know, I mean, they're aware of it because it's like, a, you know, a book is written about your band. You're aware of it. I don't care. You know, I don't care if it's good or bad. People know, like when someone writes a book about about you, but I have never gotten any feedback from anybody. It's like, I mean, which is fine, which is fine. You know, it's just, it's always like people look, are always kind of like surprised. Right. By it. I mean, you guys, people are always like, really? I'm like, like, really? Really? Well, if, you know? if you wrote a book about Kiss, I'm sure you would have heard from Bruce Kulick, Gene Simmons, <laughs> and somebody from Eric Carr's camp within like a week of it coming out. Probably. You know, <laughs> I, look, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to speculate in those circles. I don't want to speculate. I mean, and I don't, you know, this is, you know, you could also, I could also kind of imagine the flip side of that. And they think like, you got to be a bit of a weirdo to write a book about our, about me. You know, like, like anyone who's like obsessed enough to write a book, it's got to be really weird. We don't want to talk to this guy. I mean, again, I'm just, I have no idea, you know? Um, and I don't, I don't ever, you know, I don't ever expect 
that. I mean, um, you know, and uh, I, I, I talked about before that I pitched interview requests at the very end of the process of writing Van Halen Rising to the to uh, Eddie. Um, very got a very polite reply back, no from from Janie's wife. Um, I pitched it to Roth, and about two weeks after I sent it to Roth, I actually wrote back and was like. I'm thinking, well, maybe he's thinking about it. And I think just, you know, whatever his manager had forgotten or whatever, and it just hadn't, you know, kind of crossed Dave's transom. And he was like, nah, Dave's not going to do it either, which is fine. Um, so that was it. I mean, that was the end yeah. of the deal. Of course, I talked to Mike. I mean, obviously, I talked to Mike for the book. But, I, you know, again, in terms of like the finished product, that's all I know is that Mike saw a copy of the book, apparently signed, you know, I know he signed the book and wrote good. I saw the I saw the picture, like good, good read or good, good book, you know, so. So at least Mike liked it, I guess, you know, or right. thought it was worthwhile. So. Mikey likes it. <laughs> exactly. So there you go. That's my that's my endorsement right there from Mike. And Ted liked it. And I OK, Ted Templeman liked it. Right. There you go. Well, that's that's a perfect segue to your brand new book. Uh, just came out in April. Ted Templeman, a platinum produces life and music. I realized when I saw it come out that I was reminded of the fact that it had only been about six or seven years before I actually found out and saw what Ted Templeman looked like. He was always faceless to me, you know, him and Mutt Lang for years, you know, I mean, everybody knows what George Martin looks like, you know, and so even some other guys, uh, but um, Ted, I have no idea. And he's on the cover there. So of course, Ted produced the first Van Halen record as a huge fan. I know, you know, so much that that he produced, but I did not know that he produced, you know, I knew he produced the Doobie Brothers and was, uh, you know, uh, forgot the fact that he was involved with, you know, was it Linda Ronstadt and um, Nicolette Larson? I mean, tell us about how, you know, was was Van Halen Rising? Did that and was it, did that influence the next book? And you're, hey, I'm yeah, gonna well, write about yeah, Ted. Yeah, big time because uh, I was able to find a way to contact Ted. It was not easy to contact. Uh, you know, Ted was just sort of um, had stepped away from the music industry in a lot of ways. I mean, he was doing stuff, whatever, consulting and stuff, but he was not like out there making records anymore, anything like that, pretty much. And uh, I got a hold of him and uh, interviewed him. And uh, he seemed really eager to talk about Van Halen. He was like, oh, you know, he, you could tell it was like a big landmark experience in his life. The first Van Halen record, particularly, it was like, you know, one of these things that's like, that's the other, you know, iconic recordings he made. He made a lot of them. That was like one of the big landmarks was, you know, What a Fool Believes, but a Doobies, the first Van Halen record, he kind of goes through, there's, you know, five or six of them. And that was one of the big ones. And so he was very eager to talk about it and he liked the book. And so after the book came out, I basically pitched him the idea of Van Halen Rising. I was like, hey, do a book on you? And he was kind of like, are you serious? Like, <laughs> I mean, he really was like, he's like, who's going to want to read a book about me? And I was like, well, and I kind of had to, I kind of had to, I talked him into it. I mean, um, you know, I don't want to say he was like strongly against it, but he certainly was like, kind of like, no, I mean, I don't know. And like, you know, I, I don't think so. And, you know, I had to keep talking to him about it to encourage him to do it. And then, as I've said before, I honestly think like when he was finally like, okay, yeah, go, yeah, see, I'll go ahead. Good start and see what you do, whatever, you know, it was, this was, there was no book contract or anything. It was just basically like, yeah, if you want to call a couple of people or whatever, to read some articles, whatever, do whatever you want to do. I honestly think he thought I would get like bored after two weeks, but well, yeah, there's that Van Halen, there's doobies, whatever. It's just kind of boring to me and I'll move on to something else. But I just kept going and, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, when we really got it going on the on the book, you know, to kind of learn about Ted's childhood and uh, how he was a jazz phenom himself, you know, kind of like, you know, Eddie in his own little world. Like he was a trumpet phenom, a kid, like the kid, little the 11 year old kid. You play with who plays with the adults who plays trumpet with, you know, with the 25 year old piano player and the 25 year old drummer. He was a little the little um, 
amazing little trumpet player in town in Santa Cruz. And then, you know, the fact that he had been a pop star and I'd been on TV and I had toured the country and I had yeah, that I, I never knew. It blew yeah. Up. I mean, was... that stuff really, you know, so that for me, that was always um, kind of in the mix as I learned more about Ted. I thought, oh, this, you know, it isn't just a guy who made records and had this really interesting musical life where he was a jazz guy, fell in love with the Beatles, formed a group. They had hits. They toured, they were on TV, performed Raquel Welch, Bob Hope, all these big stars on, you know, on all these shows. And then, you know, ended up pivoting into becoming a record producer, which was a whole interesting. And then had all these unusual, um, I say unusual, and kind of an unusual repertoire of like wide, rather than being like the hard rock guy or some guys are like the blues guys or the, you know, the jazz guys or whatever. He sort of did a whole bunch of different genres. And I thought that was all really interesting. So, yeah, it definitely came out of Van Halen Rising. It was, it was getting to know him. And then after the book coming out, him going, I like, you know, I liked, you know, he wrote to me and goes, I, oh, this is great. I loved it. I loved it. You know? And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> if you loved it, wow. you'll like, a, you'll like a book about yourself. Um, so, you know, it was an honor and he's a great guy. And I really think it was one of the great, you know, the great experiences of my life to do that with him because I loved all those records I did. And I really, to be able to sit with him and talk to him about the way records are made and basically, have to under, learn to understand what a record producer does. And I tried my best to convey that in the book. That was the coolest part. It's like, actually, you know, I thought I knew what a record producer did, but it turns out I knew like, you know, like a tiny little sliver of what a record producer does, which really is, you know, um, not at all like the full the full picture. But I, I, you know, he kind of opened my eyes to all that stuff. Yeah, in Ted's case, I mean, he was even more more than a producer back then because he was also a Warner Brothers executive, correct? Right. So I mean, he right. had a huge hand in championing, you know, bands like Van Halen and and you know he didn't just ha- turn in the master tapes and the label ran with it. No. I mean, he was he was an integral part of these people's careers. Yeah, he got them, you know, he got them signed, and then you know that was the other thing too. It was interesting when he really we talked about Van Halen. He really explained to me kind of what went on behind the scenes with these meetings. He's like, you have any idea what the, you know, what, what I'm like, no. you know, and he would say it to me, like, do you have any idea? And I'm like, no, you know, like, <laughs> I'm a, I was always, always like, no, you know, like, I don't know anything really tell me. And um, yeah, I mean, just basically the A&R process of picking, so everything from picking songs to basically helping push marketing money as, you know, again, it wasn't only up to him, but basically going, Hey, this is, you know, this is the song, this song, like, you know, what Ted would say, I think this song is going to do well you know, that would, that would mean something for that band. And so, yeah, it's interesting to think about that dual role too, which obviously I think as everybody knows, caused some consternation for Van Halen as well when it came down to 1984, because it was sort of like the record company and Ted wanted the record finished and Eddie and Don and the band was kind of like dragging their feet. And there was this definite where they were much more working kind of more on the same team for a long time. There was much more of that, that push. Whereas if Ted was an indie producer like a, a Mutt Lang, you know, he'd be like, hey, man, I'm kind of he would be kind of caught between the band and the record company or Mutt Lang. You don't work for Epic. You don't work for a record company or right. an indie producer. But Ted was, yeah, Ted was a Warner Brothers executive vice president. So he was he was definitely I mean, you know, definitely had that that thing there going on with the um, the record company. And without uh, doing a spoiler here, I think your book is where I learned about the role that. Ted played in the creative de- uh, development of the song I'll Wait oh, yeah. and crossing over two of his top artists that he ever yeah. produced ever. So yeah. thank you for that nugget. I mean, I think a lot of the releases that had the song I'll Wait on that don't have the full writing credits on there, if I'm correct. 
that didn't come about till about 2000, at least on the printed, yeah, the releases. So that was a, yeah, I don't have, I mean, if you guys don't mind me spoiling it, I'll spoil the story. I mean, I think that the thing is that uh, that was, <laughs> I, I think the cost had a lot of headaches and a lot of um, personal angst because when Van Halen was trying to finish 1984, there was a song idea that became I'll Wait. So what I mean by a song idea is there was a, a basic chord progression and there were parts, but there was no melody and there was no lyrics. So it was, you know, something you listen to and go, oh, that's a cool idea, but there's not a there's nothing you can sing along to and it's not finished. And yeah. so um, Ted had done this a lot throughout his career. If you look at Ted's career, Ted was amazing at collaborative leadership, basically going, hey, I know what we can do. Let's call Skunk Baxter and have him play on the Carly Simon record. Or, hey, I got an idea. Let's call Tom Johnson and he can play rhythm guitar on Nicolette's record or whatever. So T Ted was really great about using his own artists to basically um, to work together, get his artists to work together. Right. Um, and he did that a lot. In part, look, he did it at, at a Nicolette. And I think part of that was that Ted was trying to always give his artists the opportunity. I mean, I know this. I don't think he actually came out and said the book, but I know this to kind of, you know, put their feet in the the um, the world of being a session musician, which is a totally different thing. Again, like you're guesting on someone's record, but also kind of Ted wanted to be like, OK, look, here's what you do. You come in and like kind of show them the ropes like, hey. You, you want you maybe you be the guy 10 years from now maybe you're the guy who like people call they're like i need a guitar solo i'm going to call x person to come in eddie van halen just make that up you know so ted was always about doing that and so he brought michael mcdonald in at his his recollection was at dave's request basically dave was stuck and dave said dave knew that ted had done this but Pesco's goes can you maybe we get mike to come in and work with me and ted's like yeah i'm sure he could so he called up mike mcdonald Dewey brothers and who had written with like <laughs> I mean, like everybody on the planet, like he had, you know, he had worked with, um, you know, again, you know, Carly Simon, of course, comes to mind. Um, Christopher Cross was a great Christopher one. Cross. Oh, Steely uh, Dan. Steely Dan. Yeah, yeah there's uh, there's not a light rock song in the in the late 70s that Michael, you don't hear Michael Donald do it. Michael right, Donald do right. a background like, focus song. Like, this was like, he'd wake up out of a dead sleep and he'd be like, I need a hit. And he'd be like, oh, give me half a cup of coffee. And he's like, you know, pour it down. And he's like, you know, writing. And like five minutes later, it's a number one. So right. they brought him in and he came in to Warner Brothers, Dave. Ted and Michael McDonald went to Ted's office at Warner Brothers and there was a piano or a keyboard in there and they had the tape. They had a cassette of the song idea, Eddie's song idea. Eddie wasn't there, but they had the song idea. And from what I understand, Mike came up with the line, I'll wait and came up with, definitely came up with the chorus melody. And there's actually was a tape recording at one time, probably sitting on a shelf 5150 or maybe it's in the trash, who knows, <laughs> but of, of Mike McDonald singing that, I go, oh, wait, you know, maybe not with the exact same lyrics, but basically like that, that melody that we all know. Because if you listen to it, it's not our Dave melody. Like it's not, it's not a right. Dave, it's an unusual. It You're right. It's a kind of an unusual melody. So, and the, the, the moral, I don't know if the moral of the story was, but basically everyone in Van Halen, Dave, Ted, people at Warner Brothers all knew that Mike had kind of come in and, you know, had co-written the song in some way. He deserved, like, as a writer's credit, he had he had finished off the song. He had written the, the, the melody. He had written, definitely written the chorus, kind of put it together. Well, when the album came out, somebody's name was missing. And not just missing on, the like, a misprint, but actually, like, that they weren't, they weren't, Mike wasn't credited 
as all. part of the songwriting royalties, which again, you could be like, okay, they left his name off the record, but actually in the paperwork that went to the publishing company, it actually had the right, it was a mistake. Next pressing it's fixed. And it says like Michael McDonald music, Van Halen music on the record, as we all know how it looked now. So, um, you know, Ted got a call. Ted didn't know about this uh, because Ted wasn't involved in like, you know, Ted didn't write the songs. Ted wasn't involved in like, formulating that that stuff about the that's the artist the artist have you have to put in paperwork to sort of have the splits okay here's how it is it's 60 40 whatever it is 50 50 whatever however it's worked out and everyone right. signs and somehow that paperwork didn't get to the right places and yeah so mike called up ted and was basically like what you know and, and kind of implying you know i don't think i'm i'm um speaking out of school but i think you know i think i think ted felt that Mike believed that maybe Ted knew about this, that Ted was basically like, Oh, don't worry about it. Mike's rich. Don't, <laughs> I'm, I'm making that up, but like, whatever, like whatever right. that Ted had sort of been like, Oh, don't worry about it. Or something like that, which, you know, Ted was horrified because he felt as that, you know, there was this betrayal of trust right. where, you know, you're brought in to do this thing, this favor, really. I mean, this favor, honestly, this big favor to, to Eddie Van Halen, particularly who really wanted the song on the record i think more than anybody from what i understand you know i'm sure alex liked it too but I, from what i understand particularly that was a song that eddie was determined to get on the record he loved it he wa he wanted it on the record it really spoke to him and so to have it be i think that was part of the thing too that was really tough for ted to kind of wrap his head around you know how did that happen you know ted you know leaves it to imagination in the book about who was responsible because ultimately he doesn't know for sure, sure like like what actually all he knows is he got a phone call from a obviously distressed distressed michael mcdonald going what's going on kind of calls over to management and he's like what's going on and there's all this like back and forth and then the lawyers get involved and ted's like all i know is this guy's mad at me and i tried to do a favor and you know but yeah that was a um one of those things that, yeah, you kind of look at and you go, wow, that's kind of hard it's, to, it's <laughs> I mean, whatever you want to say. Yeah, well, it's also fascinating in light of the fact that, you know, as far as original Van Halen compositions, there's never been a song that I know of, certainly through the Dave years, uh, where there was someone outside, you know, there was always credited to those four guys. It was never yeah, the four guys exactly, plus exactly. a song doctor or something, somebody like yeah, that. Exactly. Even in the book. Well, another minor spoiler, like Ted talks about how he helped write the chorus for Dance the Night Away. But he's like, I never would have taken a writing credit. Now, he did get some writing credits with Nicolette's albums where he, he Ted, I talked to Ted about this. And he said, look, Nicolette did that. I was never like, you know, that was just Ted's, Ted's, you see, personally for me, it wasn't worth it to say, oh, I helped write the song as a producer. I need some of the money for the song. Like Ted's like, I was, but my job was to come in and help finish the songs. Other producers might do differently. Right. I did never want it to be seen as like the guy who's kind of like horned in on the publishing, which Ted knew as an artist, if you write your own songs, that's a very valuable um, income down the road or could be a valuable income if your songs right. do well. And so Ted never wanted to be, he said, I always stayed away from that with the Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, if I, you know, whatever, help write words or whatever. And, it, and it's not like Ted's like, I deserve all this credit for this. He's just like, that's what you do. You're in the room with the guys and you're like, we right. got to finish the song. Like. You know, change this lyric here. Let's change this. Oh, Ted was a singer. So Ted sang. So he's like, OK, let's change the melody here. But like he said, you know, I never asked for writing credit or took it. And he just kind of pointed to Dance the Night Away because he like that was an example of how I sort of like, you know, would work with those guys. Like you bounce ideas around like anyway. Right. And do. that's 
And that's a big job of what really good producers, particularly producers with a real musician's background, do. You know, you're in the studio and, you know, this it's a different set of ears for the song. It's like, hey, do we do a key change coming out of this chorus right, or do right, we modulate right. or could you just add this? I mean, does that deserve a right. song, you know, point? Right, right. Does that right. deserve oh, a song right? This, this B part isn't this B part isn't very good. Let's change this B part. Let's toss it out. Oh, right. that B part's better. That's the one here. Let's do this and right, exactly. If I right. can uh, use the in uh the inroads kind of industry jargon it's change a word get a third yeah, yeah, exactly. yes <laughs> right right um which another another band a four-letter band name starts with k ends with s i mean there's some you know there's like some stuff from creatures of the night right they don't like that supposedly that you know there's a third there's a third person's writing credit on it it's actually was written by brian adams i you know i you know so you know yeah but yeah. that was so that was the thing too that it had never happened before. You're right. There was not another single um, writing credit. It always was the four guys, which, of course, leads to a whole other issue about the writing splits with Mike Anthony and this later, the issues with that, the resentments that boil over from that. Um, oh, that's just know, a cr- that's a crime right there. That's well, just. Yeah, you know. and I think that was the type of stuff that, yeah, um, that wasn't. That's underhanded. That wasn't, that wasn't on Ted's mind at the time, but it was just in right. general, as a general principle. If you look, I mean, there was just a couple of things where he's actually, I actually showed him. He's like, I, yeah, he's like, she did that. Like with Nicolette, he's like, like he was like, I'm not going to be like, hey, Nicolette, I need writing credit on this. <laughs> he was like, you know, let, uh, Ted was not a poor, you know, was not going broke being a record producer. He wasn't like, oh, in the second side of your record, Nicolette, I need, I need one third of the writing credit on this song. That's just like, you know, like basically an album track. You know, she, she did that because she felt, you know, apparently she felt very adamant that, look, you, he, he did help write this song and I want him to do that, but he would never. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he never like was like, hey, you know, you guys forgot me on that record. But you're right. That's, um, you know, and there were, um, you know, a, a good example of that. A guy who who I think really did work and write the songs in a way, maybe again, differently than just sort of work in the studio, like Alan Niven, from what I understand with Great White. You know, he, I think he really like wrote with those guys like, OK, like not like you're a member of the band, but you're basically like in the room, like right. what we're going to do. <laughs> you're writing. And that's different from than sort of being like. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was more collaborative. I other, I right. heard that about Nivet too and other writers too, where you're in the garage or you're woodshedding it right there and somebody starts right. with a riff and the producer's there with the guitar going, you know, it's more collaborative from the very beginning right. as right. opposed to just throwing in these, right. like, you know. Like this, right, the, at the very end going, oh yeah, I, I made these two little changes at the last minute in the studio, so therefore I deserve like. So yeah, um, that, that's a, that was a big, um, yeah, I mean, I think it was definitely something that left a bad taste in Ted's mouth because he's just like, it's like, <laughs> Making 1984 was not easy uh, at all for Ted, and I don't think it was easy for any of those guys to make. And then to have like, you know, three weeks later the record's out, you're like, all right, it's out. It's like going up, crowing crazy at the charts. It was all worth it. And then you get this call to be like, there's another next crisis that's happened, Ted. Oh, like, Holy so. I, I would have got an ulcer if I was Ted. I would have uh, just completely. It, it definitely. I mean, I, I, you know, he and Mike were very close friends too. I mean, he talked about how, you know, he was he was friendly with a lot of his artists and socially did things with with some of them but really mike was a guy he used to go out like you know go out with and just hang out with i mean it was just one of these things that they were like friends in a way that you know maybe you wouldn't be friends with some of your other artists you're just you know you're friends but you're actually like you know hey i'm back in town do you want to go out and get drinks and whatever hey you know hey let's bring your wife over you know that type of like social thing where it was not really related to just sort of being um the producer of the band they were more friends so he was really uh, put off by all that and caused a lot well, of issues the book shines such a huge light on everything else that Ted did before Van Halen and around Van. I mean, you know, like I mentioned at the top, you just I 
you forgot or maybe people did not know they, how, what hand he had in so many hits. But is it true also is, uh, that – see, I always thought that he stopped working with them when Dave left. Is it true that he was involved in, in uh, maybe behind the scenes on some Sammy Van Halen records too? The, well, what I can tell you, which I didn't know, um, I had no idea, is that Don, I talked to Don Landy, and Don Landy is the one who reminded – Ted reminded me, and I kind of reminded Ted. I did some emails with Don over the course of writing the book that when they were done with 5150, the record, they had the songs. Don and Eddie called Ted and said, Hey, can we come to your office and help us sequence the record? Now, I don't know if, you know, they don't remember. I don't know if like Ted's actual song order was the one that made the record or what he did, but basically, Ted had a done this dozens of times and done it on the other Van Halen records. He had sequenced them. And so they just said, Hey, let's listen to something. You know, Ted might've said, Hey, you know, we should put good enough first, whatever. I mean, whatever the, the thing is, but they did that. And then he did the similar thing for OU812. So, you know, there was definitely obviously some, some bruised egos and raw feelings. I mean, I don't think there's any, any, any way around that, but I, you know, there was sort of this, I think mythology that there was sort of like, you know, they hated each other. And I, you know, I don't, you know, look from what I understand and, from from talking to Ted and you know you can talk read interviews with Eddie like they considered you know even there was a bunch of back and forth about it but you know Ted was obviously on the short list to produce 5150 it didn't happen as the book discusses why but you know even you know the split with Dave it sort of became like the the later on the sort of revisionist history from people being like well they hated Ted so you know they they may have been you know more uh you know issues is sort of like resentments that built over time, but certainly was not like, there was like this, like, we're well, not talking to this person ever again. It just became, right. you know, you know, meaning well, like from all the stuff that had happened, it just became this big, you guys, I mean, you know, the public surface stuff is like, you know, there was a lot of the stuff in the paper and all that stuff that it sort of, you know, obviously probably didn't help calm things down where, where people were like, right. stuff. I mean, like, oh, come on, really, you know, like whoever saying really, like, oh, you know, whatever. <laughs> And the book does clip a lot of that revisionist history. I mean, you know, Eddie in particular, I know, you know, uh, I think some of the conventional wisdom became that, you know, 1984 was all Eddie and Don or, you know, it wouldn't be 1984. You know, Ted wanted it one way or whatever. And that's that's not really, the, you know, that's not really the case. There's I think there's some I think there's like shades of gray there. I think, you know, what's interesting and I'll let people read the book and see. With yeah, we're not giving any more spoilers. <laughs> more spoilers. But there was, you know, um, I think what happened during the course of making 1984 was that Eddie really was ready to take the reins and become a producer. You know, and maybe he wasn't as prepared as he thought he was because, you know, whatever. I mean, whatever it was. I mean, it maybe, you know, whatever he envisioned himself doing as a producer, he thought he was ready to do it. And ended up, you know, butting heads with, with Ted over that stuff. And it was, but it was, I think the thing that also people should understand it was, you know, for me, when I, I, I really looked at that and talked to Ted about that, you could really could see like the split that was going on between Dave and Ed, the, the, the creative differences and the, the basic inability to work together for whatever reason, you know, Ted sort of became a, a, a player in that. Like they became like, like basically he was the guy in Dave's orbit because he and Dave saw things similarly. It doesn't mean that Ted didn't think Eddie was a musical genius or had great ideas or whatever, but he just saw some of the direction, the, the musical direction of the band more like Dave wanted to see or saw it. And that sort of helped boil that resentment. I think, I think it's one of these things that we already had those two 
pull, you know, two planets kind of pulling away from each other. And it was sort of mm-hmm. like Ted kind of got dragged along with, with Dave. I don't mean like an, you know, like an innocent victim, but it was basically like he gravitated towards Dave's viewpoint on some things. Um, you know, some of the keyboard stuff and some of the other stuff where, um, you know, there was just a different difference of opinion. And then look, the band split and it was, you know, it was, it was a, a kind of a moot point because there was going to be no Roth, Ted, Ed in a studio ever again. Sure. And then I have the most random question on a different wavelength, which I like to ask to everybody who's ever been on this show. And that's, have you heard and or are you a fan of the album Sonrisa Salvaje? <laughs> Dave, the Spanish language version of Eat Him and Smile. <laughs> As produced by I Ted. I have heard a couple of songs. I've never heard it front to back. Ted didn't talk about that with me. Um, I, you know, it's funny. It's funny. I never... I don't think I ever asked him about it and he ever brought it up. But from what, yeah, I mean, Dave, I, I guess Ted was there when Dave sang it all in Spanish. I mean, <laughs> right. I must have been. But, it, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't something that Ted felt, you know, what, what are we, you know, what, the book kind of reflects what Ted would tell me in the conversations. I would obviously push him on certain things to remember stuff. But, you know, like he never was like, and the other thing I got to tell you about is the Spanish language version of Eden <laughs> Smile. But, you know, I think there's some comments in Rolling Stone where Ted talks about how, you know, that was Dave's idea and Dave's a genius because Dave thought of, hey, this whole marketplace that's out there that we should exploit, the Spanish language market, marketplace. And so, um, but yeah, Ted, uh, Ted didn't really talk about it. And I, you know, again, I've never heard the whole thing front to back. I never have. It would be it would be tough for me to listen to it from back to back. I think uh, <laughs> I I you know I I've heard from some native Spanish speakers that there's some like gringo español going on there that I don't you know I'm not a Spanish speaker but I don't know so but uh, I you know I that was that was the one thing I know that Ted did talk about in some old interview that he was you know basically like this is this is a great idea let's do this even though I think it was Ted talked about how it took a long time because you know it, it's to be able to sing get the accent and kind of get it right. line by line and sing the song was. <laughs> Loco de color. (laughs) Exactly. To talk to that guitar in Spanish takes much more work in Yankee Rose. Are are you are you big into DLR solo catalog or you just. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you know, I I, there's some stuff I'm hot and cold on. But um, yeah, I mean, I know I know most of the stuff. I mean, yeah. uh, (laughs) It's all entertaining. I know. I'm just laughing about that. Yeah, the the, uh, the 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 Spanish language, you know, the Steve by guitar. Take it again. The accent's not right, Steve. Do it. Do it again. Como? Exactly. Are you fluent, Darren? Is that why you like it? Or are you just like? A... Uh, I would not say I'm fluent. I mean, I have to speak it every day in some form for work or whatever. Oh, like jokes. absolute gringo Spanish over here. Like, but I just make my wife suffer through it regularly like she has to listen to that and the hearing aid chair and charity single much more than anybody should <laughs> we 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 had uh if you if you know linus of hollywood the artist linus of hollywood we had him on a couple weeks ago and he told the funniest story he said he loves to put that on at parties and you hear the opening of yankee rose and people's like yeah all right haven't heard dave in a while and then all of a sudden it goes into smash people are like what the fuck <laughs> you know i mean it's just i love the very idea that the you know just of, well of that visual <laughs> I, as long as we're going to the the the, uh, the david lee roth podcast all sorts of unusual cul-de-sacs here the thing uh <laughs> that i always wanted to see which i never there's a little clip of it but it's very low res on youtube is that dave did uh a you know did california girls and gigolo 
at the Miss Mexico contest in 1985. Uh, what? Like, yeah, he came out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he came out and did like, you know, and if you and if you there are there are some if you search for like Miss Mexico 1985, you can kind of see the stage. And I mean, and Davis talked about this interview where he like talked about how um, it may have actually may have been in his book too, where he talked about how he was at this thing. He may have said, uh, I was at this pageant in Mexico and, uh, <laughs> and he's like, say, we're like the girls come out, all the girls from all the different you know cities and towns in Mexico are going to be in the contest come out and they're all dancing around. And he's like, what's that song? And he's like this like rock riff and he can't really hear because the PA is bad, but it was Wango Tango by Ted Nugent. <laughs> and actually that clip, you can't see Dave, but that clip is on YouTube. And so, but that's one of my holy grails to see like Dave, presumably with like 25 pageant girls behind him doing this whole thing. We're like, and you're like, cause there's a low res version, he, you know, of, of it. It's like really crappy, almost like a webcast. And maybe that came from Roth's old show. I don't know. Like the old, like Roth, what was that? Um, the slaughterhouse site or something like that. I don't know where that came oh, from, but right. it's like, God, really like, it's like, the, 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 it's the, the, it's really bad resolution, but yeah, that's my whole crowd. So, yeah, I mean, because I presumably, you know, he, he must have done the, oh, David Leroth, oh, you know, Aki, you're here, you know, like, they're like, oh, you know, oh, you know, the whole, the whole thing in Spanish. I'm sure he talked in Spanish to the host and did the whole, like, thing, oh, you know, beautiful ladies and all this stuff. And I'm sure he did all that stuff, but that's, yeah, that, oh, that yeah. ever, ever, sure, forget the Oakland 81 show, but we, I want that. That's what right, I want. Right. I want a beauty 81. contest. Get it? No, you know, is it save one thing, Oakland '81 or Dave at the beauty contest in 1985 in Mexico. I'm saving the Mexico City lip sync. I got to see David Lee Roth in I think '04 in Japan, yeah. and he oh, still awesome. did in the middle of the show the breakdown where he's talking in Spanish, and you kind of go, um, you know, you're in Japan, right? They don't speak Spanish here. I don't know. The, I guess he just kind of likes to break out the Portuguese and the Spanish. The Portuguese and, all and Spanish. Or maybe he was just like really high and just made a mistake and like yeah. went with it. I mean, well, that could now, be it. Well, now we know he can do, he can speak fluent Japanese. So 2004 was before that. So, right. you know, we'll cut him a little bit of slack there and he probably was high. So, you know. <laughs> and then the other thing that I like to ask Greg, cause you've been so generous with your time before you go back to Steve here. Are you a fan of the no holds barbecue video? Oh, well I am. Uh, <laughs> I am insofar as it was almost all filmed on Roth's property. I'm pretty sure right. like even like yes. the, the clip. I mean, I have a clip on my Twitter that I took out of it. If like the pool, let's see where he's like the he's like the Green Beret, the Navy SEAL with the gun going through. And I'm like, that's the pool. I finally understand. There's like there's like this white plastic shit. And like, you know, it's it's like that's the swimming pool in the back of the Roth house. So, yes, I am. Um, I also have a weird obsession. And if you guys have uh, people want to check it out on my Twitter, which is at Greg Renoff. Uh, commercial interruption over there are some clips of movies that were filmed at the Roth house there's a so um, I just recently did like the Tim Conway um, the billion dollar hobo which is a terrible movie but it was filmed in part the part where Tim Conway who's going to be you know inherit his I know it's a really unusual plot it's never happened to me before the the <laughs> the, the, the kind of the layabout nephew is going to inherit his uncle's billion dollars if he does these things I know we've never heard a plot of a movie like that before but the, the billionaire <laughs> uncle living in the Roth house and actually there's a clip uh, you know this is a movie came out in 79 it's called the, the uh, million dollar hobo you can see it on my Twitter um, you know and some of the scenes were shot inside the house you can see the the checkerboard floor dave's house and there's some of the interior lobby but you know most famously for me interestingly is that 
Tim Conway walks up those steps at the back of the house where they took the famous 1979 promo shots where Niels Lozauer shot them on the stair, basically the stairs up to the back of the house. So, yeah, I'm, I'm it's like that's what's hilarious to me is like there were a number of movies shot at the house. And then Dave was like, I'm going to make the, 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 the no holes barbecue in the backyard of the, in the house. Too, right? The Mojo Dojo. Yes. <laughs> Oh my, that's, that's, well, you just blew my mind. I'm, you know, I never before have I thought of Tim Conway and David Lee Roth in the, Here's in why the I same know this. mindset. I'll, I'll bring it back full circle to Van Halen <laughs> Rising. So I, one of the guys I got to interview Van Halen Rising after, you know, talking to a lot of people and um, I actually talked, interviewed the son of the previous owner of the Roth mansion. So the family's name is Doherty. So before the Roths lived there, the Doherty family lived there and one of the one of the things that apparently the Doherty family sold the house to the raw to Mr. Roth, Dr. Roth. And from what I understand, the agreement was, OK, I'll sell you the house. If you let my son stay and live in the garage apartment. So, you know, like the very famous if, if you look down the driveway, I say famous because Dave has parked. Sometimes you see the picture of his 51 Mercury in front of a garage. That's if you look if you look straight down the driveway of Dave's house, there's like a three car garage with which a lot of houses have in Pasadena with a garage apartment like a servant's quarters so this guy Pete lived up there also living at the property at the same time I don't know if I talked to Pete or this other guy was the was the groundskeeper and he told me this he goes man it was we're living there or whatever like you know all the stuff at Davies you know some weird shit would happen there so like what happened he goes one day I woke up and I was like dead asleep with my girlfriend and I heard this knock on the door and the door opens and Tim Conway looks in and he goes excuse me uh I'm looking for like whatever. I'm looking for like the bathroom or something. I'm looking for the ba- like I'm lost. I'm looking for the bathroom. <laughs> like, I guess he didn't know like whatever was a, there was a movie being made, but he didn't know that Tim Conway was gonna make it. Like Dr. Roth was like, they're making a movie, so just stay in your room or something. <laughs> Tim Conway like he's like you know Tim Conway's pretty famous, right? He sticks your hand in the door. And he's like, hey, where's the bathroom? So that's why he told me the name of the movie. So it's like it's one of these movies that never even made like no way Blu-ray made it ever even put on DVD. I have a VCR tape of it, so. It's that's crazy, and that's this that's mind blowing. I, no idea, absolutely no. So there's idea. there's but a teaser for another for an episode for you guys. Do your on, on your own. You guys can go off and do this. Is that there's probably four or five movies that were shot there in the seventies. Most of which, by the way, most of which, including an episode of the, of, of uh, the Bionic Woman, also available on my Twitter. Most of which Dr. <laughs> Roth Dr. Roth acted in. What what? Oh, you guys! You guys got to. Oh my guys God! I feel like an, I feel like, like an amateur. Oh, I only know the Spanish language, David Lee Roth history. <laughs> I, I apologize. I listen. I never. If that if that guy hadn't told me that, I never would. And I, this is he told me this probably ten years ago, and I was like always looking on eBay, and there'd be like, you know, this. It, they must have made maybe they made like five hundred DVDs of it, so there were like you know fifty left existing in the world, and it was like seventy five dollars for DVD. I'm like, I'm not paying seventy five dollars for a Tim Conway DVD. Like we all know, like no Tim Conway movies were seventy five dollars. But uh, you know, but then like, like on golf is. Then, right. then I saw a VCR tape of it. Like I was like, okay, and uh, yeah, you can see it's really cool. It's and Dr. Roth is in that movie, and he's in the he's in the Bionic Woman episode, and there were two or three other movies that I haven't seen. Uh, but he is he is in. I mean, he he actually, you know, he in all seriousness, he was um, very interested in the theater and the stage. He really spent a lot of time and energy promoting theater in Pasadena. And, you know, for what it's worth, I mean, you know, these weren't like, you know, great movies, but he got to be in a movie and have a speaking roles with Tim Conway and stuff like that. So, he, you know, he did fine. It was like you're like, OK, it's like, you know, it's, it, that's Dave's dad. I mean, it's kind of interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, it's it's cool. 
That's a, that's just uh, my mind blown. I'm without speech yeah. here, Greg. <laughs> so we got so we got to ask, uh, what's what's next? What are you working on, book project wise? Or and I got a book idea for well, you. Well, give me your book idea first, and I'll, I'll tell you what I'm working. All right. On. <laughs> so here's here's my here's my book idea because this is a mystery. The Van Halen reunion 2007. Outside of that initial press conference. It was like, and you know, when the internet existed, this thing was dead silent. There was virtually no, I mean, how the hell did it happen? How did it get to where it got, let alone recording an album? But I mean, there was, to, to get, we have a saying around here, you know, if Dave's mouth is yapping, trouble's happening, right? Over time, you know, <laughs> quotes get out. That's true. I, and so... I'm here. I am a gigantic. I can't believe this is happening. Oh Christ! This is just good. Someone's going right. to say something stupid. How is it's right? Well, because you're be traumatized a, from 1996, 97. That's why. Yes, yeah. and there's going to be a blow up exactly, and there's going to be a blow up on stage. And I mean, just and yet it worked for whatever. And just so the so your investigatory prowess, your researching. I don't know. Get Irving Azoff on the phone. People have got to know behind the scenes. How the hell did this? This is, you know, the Palestinians and the Israelis coming together. I mean, it's the fact that it happened at all is mind blowing. The fact it didn't fall apart within a year blows my mind as well. And that they kept it completely silent. I mean, it had to be contractual obligations that Dave did virtually no press. Right. It's it. You know. Oh, yeah. All I need is Irving and Wolfgang, and we'll get the, we'll get the ball rolling, right? That'll be that'll be easy. I'll just pick up the phone and call Wolfgang, and then call Irving, and then we'll just get the book deal going. You know, it is interesting. I mean, there are actually a lot of these these like little, little areas of Van Halen history, and that is a, that is one that's really quite yeah quite curious. I mean, like the second Gary Sharon out, like all you know, like these things again, like right. yeah, it would be interesting to take. Gary's like talked about it, but like never really like. You know, on the record, never has kind of sat down and been like, okay, here's the deal, dude. Let me just tell you, like, everything, like, happened. Like, here's, like, this happened this day, and I was living there, and this happened, and then suddenly I wasn't in the band, whatever. It would be really interesting rather than kind of going, you know, like, the sort right. of the the PC stuff, which, you know, again, no no offense to Gary. I understand. He's like, you know, it's, it's in some ways, like, it's just who cares, right, in some ways. But on, to us, we care, right? So, right. You know. and, and the Van Halen camp is like, yeah, I mean, you only get what they want you to hear, basically. I mean, exactly. uh, yeah, I've never seen a, I've never seen a, a band, you know, have just forsake the idea of keeping their fans informed so completely. I, just, you know, I mean, it's, it's like it goes back, it just goes, comes full circle, our earlier conversation. I mean, I really do think that it's just not their, their thing. I mean, they're just not, right. you know, it's right. just, it's the family it's the family approach. It's like if we're good, people will recognize it, and everyone recognizes Van Halen's good, and they just kind of think we're not going to be the monkeys on TV like other people, you know, like kind of hanging on to our fame. And you know, again, and out of all the guys who deserve to be on TV, let's face it, those guys do. But you know what I mean? Like sort of the people like desperate to be like relevant. I think those guys are like, you know what? We did it. We did it. Yeah. For self, we sold 80 million records, toured the world, 10 straight platinum records, whatever. I mean, they feel like we did it. They you did know? on and their they, and on their terms. Exactly. Exactly. And I think they kind of, I, again, I don't know. That's my guess is that they're, they're going to like, why would we bother? You know, yeah. we don't, we don't need to prove anything to anybody. We're Van Halen. And, you know, and, and I also do think in all seriousness is that I think those, I know Alex in particular has talked about this. They sort of saw the, you know, Zeppelin as their template, not as sort of the music, but more of like, you know, you didn't see like Jimmy Page like going on variety shows. I mean, like, hey, I'm Jimmy Page. He's here with you know on the Hollywood <laughs> yeah. Squares, right? There was more of like a mystique, and those guys kind of kept themselves. You know, Robert Plant, they're very reserved, and they sort of, you know, they kind of kept themselves out of this and let the spotlight and let the music speak for itself. And so, that, for what it's worth, I think that's yeah. 
Yeah, that's what I think about too. In this day and age, that keeping a mystique, some sort of mystery, is a great marketing strategy. All you know, every way around, and it harkens back to the way it used to be, and and that's a good thing. Yeah, and I think I think. And it works. You know, if those, if they, yeah, and if those guys ever do anything again, we'll we'll uh, we'll find out about it. I'm sure. I, you know, I think. But you know, I I, uh, I I just don't I don't think they see themselves as in the same conventional way that some other acts would of their same generation you know they just right. don't like i mean like you know uh like nikki six on twitter can you imagine alex van halen on twitter like interacting oh. with fans i mean I just can't i mean it's just it's yeah. not it's just not their thing right so like there's and that's not a shot at nikki at all it's like it's great i mean i love it like i love that you go on twitter and you can like talk to like mark kendall from great white i happen to be a big i like great white and it's like so yeah. cool that he's on there it's just it's whatever it's just it, for different people it's different thing it's not it's not to pass judgment on anybody it's just that that's not who they are that's right. just not who they are and i think it's you know it's it's cool that wolf wolfie is on twitter and on facebook and instagram will talk to people and you know that's that's cool but for the for his um you know his uncle and his dad i just think they're just like nah that's not that's not what we do but yeah. for the record, I, I did find the Pinterest account of Alex's wife, and there's a lot of stuff about Barnes on there. I'll, I'll send that link to you if you want. <laughs> yes, they're um, yeah, I know they're really into horses, right? That's which is yeah, cool. exactly horses yeah, and I think in Denmark. Like horses in Denmark, there are no horses. <laughs> I, I don't know if if it's in go, Denmark or Danish. Yeah, go on Twitter or some message board, I whatever, and like post like I've cracked the code. It's Van Halen album's gonna have to do with horses and. Denmark and people will be like, you know, 75 messages later, it's like, I, I don't know if this is serious or not, but you know, it's like a big conspiracy, but yeah, we believe it, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, again, those guys, it's cool. Right. I think, you know, whatever they're, they're approaching 70 and they're like, you know what? Hey, we've, we did it. You know, we, we did it. You know, we don't, it's, it's kind of weird. You know, we don't expect like Brett Favre to be out there like throwing footballs anymore. It's like sort of, right. you know, and that's music's different. It's a different deal. I get that, you know, like, you know, but, I think that's probably the, you know, hey, we did it. You know, if yeah. we ever do it again, like if there's an old timer, you know, like old timers game, Brett Favre's going to come throw some footballs. And if they decide they want to do another go around and go out again, which would be great, we'll, you know, we'll all go and they'll just go out. We'll do our 30 shows or 20 shows, whatever it is. And we'll, we'll go back to doing what we did before, which is horses in Denmark and whatever. Right. I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm envious. I wish I had like that life. That would be, I love horses. I'd love to be able to like, oh, raise horses and like travel and be, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like, or like you know, go go tour sheds every summer. I mean, I think do it's like we should all be so lucky. Yeah, we should all be so lucky to do exactly. things on our own schedule exactly. that we want. <laughs> exactly. We should be like, you guys earned it. You you know, you guys toured hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of nights to do this, to be able yeah. to have that. And it's it's such a cool story. And I have so much. Look, we all did. We have all so much respect for all those guys for what they accomplished and what they did. And I was like, you know, it's like whatever they want to do is it's great. I would love for them to tour again if they never do. Hey, yeah. thanks for what you did. I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to, you're just, you don't owe anybody anything. Um, I don't want, I'm going to get off my soapbox now, but it's just sort of, I don't know. It's just, you know what I mean? It's like people like, I see people like, I see people saying like these tweets to Wolfie. I'm like, really? I'm like, you're going to like, like give the kid shit over something like, like, like what? Like, like, like you should be fucking bowing down to the kid for like getting those guys back together. Like, right, totally. exactly. You got Roth into Eddie in the same room again. You yeah. fucking, like Wolfie, whatever you do. It's all cool, man. You you right. you got you know you're the guy who supposedly got the ball rolling on thing, which was seeming like like they get the Israelis and the Palestinians to make peace, like you said. It's like it's un- unbelievable. Yeah. Thank you. Thank those, you. Those, I, I crap because whatever is like 
because the band isn't touring. I just, I just, people are just, I don't know, man. It's just like, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I'm always like, really? I'm like, really? I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, what's wrong? Like, what is wrong with you? Like, what, how does that make you feel good to give? Again, it's like, you know, half that stuff goes on all the time. And I was like, I, give, I never like, understood like, that. Are you going to give like, like Wolfie of all people? <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically like take it out on him because whatever, Van Halen isn't touring this summer. You know, it's like, like yeah. Or you're the or you're or you're the son who, by the way, is an immense musical talent for God's sake. So I mean, what in the world are you giving this guy shit for? I mean, come on. He's got a, you know, it's he's been on. Uh, you know, I followed him on Twitter for a long time, and he's been interactive with fans, and it's been like whatever. You know, it's like yeah, it's it's fine. It's it's like it's great, right? It's great. He's you know he's got the name. He's likes music. I mean, if he was a painter, I'd be like happy for him too. But aren't we all happy he's a rock musician? I mean, exactly. It's great, right. I mean, exactly. like, you know, he could, maybe he'd be like, you know, you know, uh, whatever, doing something else. Like he's like, a, you know, he'd be like a basketball coach or something like that. That'd be great. Well, Van Halen's <laughs> right. basketball coach. He's a great basketball coach. But, but, you know, I prefer that he's a musician. I'm, I'm happy. Like, what's not to be happy about? It's great. Exactly. So before we get out of here, what is what is the next thing? What are you working on right now? What might be well, next from you? That's an interesting question. See, the thing is here is that uh, school is closed. Ah, yes. So I have children and. So my writing projects have been sort of put on pause for the time being. So, you know, I, I will write another book. I will almost certainly write another Van Halen book, but I don't have anything rolling right now because, to be honest with you and everybody, I mean, I think people know the uncertainty of COVID. I don't, you know, I have um, I actually passed up on the opportunity to write another, to basically collaborate with another um, prominent uh, musician, wasn't a producer, was a musician, on a biography, and I basically had to tell this person's manager that I can't in good conscience commit to do this because I have no idea what's going to happen right. with, I have small children. My wife works a full-time job and you know, it was just, it's uh, their home, their home. And you know, one or both of us has to be there to be able to like get them through the school day. They're young. They're in their two. I can't just go, you know, here's the, here's, the, here's the zoom call. I'll be back in eight hours. Have a great right. day. Get, you know, it's just, it's just unfortunate, but that was, um, you know, what's been going on. So, um, you know, I, I am eager to write another book and I'm not thrilled that I'm not writing another book, but you know, I'm sure you guys have had life alterations as well. Um, sure. things that are like not quite as you would hoped. So that's the this thing is I don't have a book, a uh, book going right now, but you know, um, yes, I'm all, all, all ears for your book ideas. That's great. I'll just, you know, zero, <laughs> I'll zero in on the 2007, you know, and look, um, I, I, poured my heart and soul into those two Van Halen related books, you know, one way level or another. And, um, I'm looking forward to writing another book. Just, I have to, I have to have some, you know, kids have to leave the house and go to school for yeah, me to be yeah. able to like, you know, that's kind of was like my sweet time to, you know, they come home and you're sort of, you know, just, it's, uh, I'm a, a later in life parent, so to speak. And it's just, that's the way it's, it's, it is. And it's, it's great to be a parent. And, uh, you know, some people my age category have 22 year olds. I have, <laughs> I have children that are much younger than that. So, yeah, Under, understood. Uh, well, given all that, man, we certainly thank you for the time that, to say the least. They're asleep. So we're good. This is like, I, mean, right. I, I guess in theory, like, you know, I can be like typing it out, but usually this time of night, I'm just like, oh, shit. <laughs> you, know, like, you know, you guys know that feeling. You're just like, you're like done. You know, you put in your day's work. So, um, yeah, I mean, in all seriousness, I'll get I'll get another book out eventually. And, probably, you know, certainly I'll write another Van Hill book eventually. But it's just, yeah, for, I, I, I really had had hopes. But, I mean, it's weird because uh, 
you know, the book came out in April and it was at the time it was like, oh, well, maybe we'll push back the book signing with Templeman in California for like three weeks. <laughs> well, yeah. that's not happening. Right. So, yeah. yeah, so just a whole different different thing. So, well, my favorite book of 2020. Thank you for doing oh, what great. you Thank do. You. One of the best interviews, if not the best interview we've done. Right, Steve? Oh, I'm having this has been a blast, man. Thank you so much for time. Yeah. I'm so looking forward to this, and uh, it, it and it, I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Greg. That was As fun the too, great yes. one will say, nothing but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great one. Yeah. Well, uh, again, head on over to my Twitter, and you guys can. I will uh, if you search uh, my username and Bionic Woman, you will be able to find the clip of Dr. Roth and the Bionic Woman. If you search my username and Twitter search box and uh, billion dollar Tim Conway. It, you know, that's the only tweet about Tim Conway. It'll come up. You can see it. It's really kind of interesting. You're like, whoa, that's the Ross house in 1977. There it is. 78. It's cool. It's, you know, prime Van Halen time. I know what I'm doing after this. After it's it's this fun. Call. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> and, and I'll send you that Pinterest, Greg, in the yes, couple please. of minutes, okay? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the gold right there. That's the gold. That's the gold. <laughs> you got it. I mean, I, I got to check it out. Hey, talk to you guys. Thanks. Appreciate it so much. Thanks. Thanks. Cheers.